people once believed that when someone dies, a crow carries their soul to the land of the dead. But sometimes, something so bad happens that a terrible sadness is carried with it, and the soul can't rest. And sometimes, just sometimes, the crow can bring that soul back to put the wrong things right. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Suddenly, I heard a tap as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. Today, as part of our Hello Rewind series, we'll be discussing The Crow, starring Brandon Lee. They don't move, Snow White, you move, you're dead. And I say I'm dead, and I move. Ernie Hudson. And an eviction in that neighborhood? Shelley Webster and her nice rock and roll boyfriend are great. Rochelle Davies. I wish the rain would stop just once. Can't rain all the time. Michael Wincott. You're Emma, the Avenger. The killer of killers. And Bay Ling. The crow is his link between the land of the living and the realm of the dead. Directed by... Alex Proyas. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. A whole jolly club with jolly pirate names. It's Galley in Glasgow. Just a little worm on a big fucking hook. It's Devlin in London. Fire it up! Fire it up! Fire it up! It's Patrick in London! <laughs> Goddamn creatures of the night. They never learn. It's Matt in South Korea. Well, hello and welcome back, listeners, to our second episode in our Hello Rewind series. Now, before we... I mean, you know the episode because it was in the intro. But before we get into it, we want to allay some fears, right? Set some ground rules. So, Devlin, yes, would you like to explain our sort of mantra for what qualified as a Halloween film for us to pick? Because technically, there's not a slasher film in sight. Mm-hmm. So... People might be wondering where Freddy and uh, Jason are. A couple of Halloweens ago, I put together a little uh, a little watch list of stuff that I would like to recommend for, for Halloween watching. And um, I kind of feel like sometimes there's a tendency in maybe some like blogs or, or online kind of listicles to just put out just whatever horror film they can think of. Whereas something like, I don't know, I don't think like, for example, that I would watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre over Halloween just because... It doesn't feel very seasonally appropriate. It's set in summer. It's uh, uh, it's about a you know a crazy fucked up family and a guy in a mask made of skin with a chainsaw. And it sounds like it should be, but I, I guess there's something very specific about Halloween for me that because I do watch, I guess quite a few horrors in general as part of my average kind of film diet. Um, I'm not always that drawn to just watching whatever horror comes my way. So I think there's there has to be something that, that sort of links you to the season. So something like Trick or Treat or uh, obviously the Halloween franchise is, is set at Halloween. But um, unless it has that sort of thematic link, it just doesn't feel like um, it doesn't feel like you need to watch it at this time of year. So I, I tend to go a little more, um, uh, I guess, supernatural than than anything else just because of something about Halloween, you know, the, the walls are down between the living and the dead. And, and I think, uh, as well as the fact that this film is set at Halloween, there is, you know, there's, there's, uh, that's, that's the plot 
essentially of the film that this is somebody who has come back, who has come back, who has crossed the permeable membrane between twixt the living and the dead. And it only happened at this time of year. Um, and also it's just, it's a very kind of, it's dripping with a very kind of monochrome gothy atmosphere and it's got a fucking awesome soundtrack. So that's, that's, uh, that's why I picked it. I could imagine you back home as a teen dressed as the crow. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> um, if we are moving on to how we first, uh, uh, saw the film, I wouldn't have seen it at the cinema, obviously, cause it was an 18. Uh, in the UK, which is surprising in retrospect, I think, although there are a few scenes which probably justify it. I doubt it would get that rating these days. I think there would be judicious editing to bring that down to a 15. Um, uh, but I watched it quite a lot. And I think it was a film that, uh, even though I would have seen it when I was kind of pre-teen, during my teen years, I probably had uh, attached myself more and more to it uh, up until the point that I was probably maybe 16. Uh, somewhere in the world there will be at least one, probably multiple photographs of me at the age of 16 with my greasy mop of dyed black hair. Yes. This is what I've got um, in my notes. My notes with, was, Devin, have you ever dressed up as the crow? Wearing a black <laughs> long sleeve top that I wrapped in gaffer tape. Uh, wearing my dad's old black leather duster that I found in a closet. I had no idea that he had this. I'd never seen it before. Um, with my face painted. Uh, I'd probably set aside my Foster's ice so as not to tarnish the the true gothy. The true was this life. Halloween or was it just an, an this average? This was actually Christmas um, Alfred, yeah, you're uh, just trying to walk down the shopping centre and look, look really really cool. This was in the the, the Checkers Inn in Dalton, which is my, my local pub. It's where I used to. Uh, I've the Checkers Inn before. I used to be the washing up boy there, and uh, it was uh, uh, Matt. It was our it was our friend Noel Hollis's birthday party. Aha! Uh-huh, right. Uh, so there's me. That would that would make it Christmas though. It, it yeah, it would have been. It would have been Christmas. Yeah, because his his birthday is uh, uh, Christmas Eve. So yeah, yeah. about Christmas. Dress, dressed as uh, as the crow at Christmas in a delightful. <laughs> In a little village pub <laughs> in North Yorkshire, standing next to my mate Hacker, who was dressed as the Hulk because he'd forgotten to buy a costume, <laughs> and, he's a big, and he's a big lad, so we just painted him green and ripped his shirt. <laughs> Did you say you were wearing the makeup as well? Yep. <laughs> Put a picture in the show notes, please. Well, let's let's find out if anyone else has pulled this horse Fuck shit. No, you're on your own here, mate. Uh, okay, um, uh, Patrick, I would, uh, when did you see this? Uh, today, first time I've really? ever seen it was wow. today. I know, and you know when you suggested it and everything, um, and I saw your list going through the list. It's one of the one of the only ones on the list I've not seen. And immediately uh, I started thinking about why I've not seen it. And I was really surprised myself because I've always wanted to see it. It's always been a film with such a high reputation for for the bad, which we'll talk about later. Uh, you know, the, the notoriety of, of the fate of Brandon Lee, yes. um, which I remember discussing at school. A lot of people who I knew then liked the film and it was very popular and I just mm. never, shit excuse, I just never got around to seeing it and I've never right. sought it or it's never been readily available to me or I don't know what. Yeah. Um, and I'm really glad you picked it because I was really happy to see it because it opened up years of thinking, shit, I need to see this film. And mm. finally I have and can understand it a bit more and 
uh, it was really good reading into it today. So yeah. already was, I'm thanking you. It was a big, um, it was a big bonding experience for, for a lot of people. I think like there's people not only uh, at, the, at the time I maybe didn't know so many people who would have cared. Possibly I was the only person who saw it and gave a shit out of all my childhood friends. Mm. Um, I, I know uh, people like that though, who yeah, I hung around definite with. Definite small town misfit vibes with, you know, the same diversions and stuff. But I like later in life, I kind of met people that, you know, I would bond with them over the fact that, we would have like I remember when I moved to Stoke when I went to uni there I, I moved in next door to this uh, this guy Patrick another Patrick not as cool uh, as me su- uh, super nice guy um, uh, art he was a uh, um, doing an art degree which which was or, which was cool to me uh, he wore <laughs> a leather duster trench coat <laughs> he had very long hair and he fucking loved it. he had this McFarlane figure of the of Eric Draven <laughs> with the thing and I was fuck I loved it and then um, he was like, he was shocked that I'd never read the comic, so he lent me the comic. He was actually the guy who got me into underground comics. I'd never really bothered reading comics, and he kind of lent me that and uh, uh, you know the usual kind of gateway stuff, Frank Miller and and the Watchmen and some of the other uh, um, stuff of that sort of era. And that's where I started getting into comics. It wasn't until I was eighteen, really. All I'm um, taking from this is that there's a Patrick out there that you prefer over me. <laughs> devastating. I would never. <laughs> I would never contemplate putting the two of you in a pit and saying, you must fight for my affection. Because you know I'd win. Um, I want it, Devlin. I want your affection. And then uh, uh, later later again, uh, my friend Brooke, not all that long ago, a few years back. I remember Brooke. uh, Brought me a a signed copy of James O'Barr's comic, which is really nice. She bought me that for Christmas a few years back. Because we'd, again, bonded over the fact that we were the fucking weird kids who liked The Crow at the time. I'm well aware of its popularity and I've been well aware of it for, for a while, Devlin. And yeah. I know people who are, you know, people like yourself in my book celebrate Halloween more and bigger than they do Christmas. And yeah. that those kind of people, I, I do know that the crow is in quite high esteem um, amongst a certain demographic. It is. It's uh, it's it's a uh, it's a narrow band of interests that we get into. And and just like Patrick, you know, I'll not I'll not um, spend too long on this one. It was absolutely the notoriety because, and it's not like you know, not to make it uh, be dismissive, but it's not like Brandon Lee is the first ever person to ever die on set of a film. Mm. But at this point, I don't know if the if I was aware of a star of a film to die during the making a film, and then that star have a father. Who has got a, a, a literally is the you know the height of pop culture, which is you know people have got Bruce Lee posters and never seen any of his films. He's just yeah permeated mm. uh, pop culture in that respect, and so so I was fully aware of it because it was a big news story. And even as a teenager who didn't really sort of pay too much attention to these things because it wouldn't have been cool, um, yeah, it. it, it I totally recognized it and I saw it early and not dismissed it, but I didn't really see the buzz at the time, but I think it's because it wasn't my scene. What about you, Matt? When, when was the first time you saw the crowd? Well, I saw this in my Darlington college years. Um, I was drinking a lot of filter coffee and watching TCM, uh, <laughs> throughout that period, making long play vhs tapes and neatly labeling them and people would tease me that i wrote the names of the directors and and the length of the movie and all boring stuff like that and uh so but that era really provided a strong foundation for for whatever film knowledge i have we didn't have sky until i was 17 ish 
but I really appreciated it when we finally got it. We got a lot of football and uh, a lot of films were absorbed during those years. Uh, but the, the Crow itself was actually recommended by um, my friend Dave. Um, Rewinders will remember him as the guy whose brothers acted out the classics. Uh, hey! uh, yeah, oh, Schindler's, yeah. List Schindler's List and uh, yeah. Teenage Mutant good. Ninja Turtles. I'm just imagining him <laughs> <laughs> putting on a little red jacket. <laughs> I know, I can imagine them going up to you, yeah, going up to you, Matt, and saying, I pardon you. (laughs) Well, he first told me the Brandon Lee story, the tragic story that we've mentioned. We've alluded to it, but we'll talk about it a bit more later. Um, He over-embellished some of it, uh, you know, how it occurred and the actual logistics of it all. But uh, that death overshadowed the entire film for me on the first viewing as it just completely preoccupied my, my mind. And particularly as I'd heard that they used computer techniques to finish the movie. So it was somewhat distracting the first time around. Uh, I was never a goth. Uh, Cradle of Filth always scared me. Uh, I dyed my hair black once at uni when the Strokes album Room on Fire came out and I wanted to look like Julian Casablancas. But um, other than that, uh, and having a bit of a cure phase once upon a time, I dodged going full goth. Um, but I remember loving the film and its dark plot and even thinking in some parallel universe, this could be my favorite film. I, I was still seeking, uh, I was looking for a film that would sort of define me. Maybe you kind of do at that age with music too. I was looking for something that would speak to me very powerfully, but it was kind of a fool's errand. I think it's like in almost famous where he says your favorite music chooses you. And I think, the same thing happens with films. So um, you just have to be patient and kind of wait for it to come along. You know, you can't just kind of arbitrarily choose a film and say it's it's your passion or it's your favorite or anything like that. You have to wait for it to come around. So, yeah, this was a really interesting one to revisit without the teenage angst uh, that I had back then. If you're talking like late 90s, early 2000s, coming of age, you know, you're the the self-appointed... No this less. is early 90s, though. Uh, yeah, but I mean... I, Seen late 90s. You know, it came out when I was 10, but it would have been a few years before I kind of really latched onto it. It would have been kind of towards the latter part of the 90s when I started, you know, uh, uh, turning a bit disgruntled. And I think um, <laughs> when you're the sort of self-appointed, uh, uh, you know, misfit, in in a small, very small town, you don't have access. Like I always got really envious of um, when I'd read about bands that I really loved. I would, I'd get really envious of their upbringings. Like um, it's a couple of, uh, a band I really love called um, uh, Caden, who've always been a big favorite of mine. And mm. I went to see them probably I was only seventeen or eighteen. I went to see them at um, Newcastle University, and I remember um, reading an article where the uh, I found out that the dude is like three or four years older than me. Um, the, the lead singer, Steve Brodsky. And, uh, when he was 15, he was already playing bass in a band called Converge. Uh, and then when he was 13, he was already playing like, you know, Slayer riffs and stuff. And I just thought we didn't have access to that sort of stuff at that age. You just weren't exposed mm. to it whatsoever. So, I mean, you, we were all, everyone who wanted to kind of, you know, uh, show everyone how individual and, and dark and fucked up they were. They all had exactly the same <laughs> shit. Like we all had the same stuff. It's not until, you know, you, you kind of reach like very late teens to early twenties that you could get any differentiation. So if you were a, if you were a small town weirdo, you were into the crow. 
Yeah. Well, no, Devlin, just to, just to make sure that it's not like we're not dog piling on you, you know, as, a, as, a, as, a, as somebody who has, you know, wanted to be a, a director and idol, you know, I'm basically a Dawson Creek, uh, cliche. He wanted to, you know, mm-hmm. follow Spielberg and wanted to be, wanted to follow his career. I was like five or six years behind him from day dot because in Stoke, you know, I couldn't even get a fucking camera. But so you know what I mean? Like the idea of, um, yeah, the idea of trying to sort of emulate your heroes and follow their footsteps, et cetera. I totally get it. I just didn't, you know, Spielberg, mm. I didn't have a beard and nor could I get a fake one, but you could get makeup. So you put it on. I get it. <laughs> and I got it from Guru Boutique, which was a goth shop. In- <laughs> <laughs> That's Silver Street in Leicester, Devlin. That's where you get your goth stuff. Do you know the story behind the comic book? Like A little. Well, so the, the, the comic was created by James O'Barr. Uh, he started writing it in the very early part of the 80s, 81, 82 maybe. Um, and it was written as a direct result of an accident in which he was only, I believe, 18 or 19 at the time. And his fiance was also 18 and, uh, she was killed in a car accident. Um, uh, she was, she was coming to pick him up and, um, uh, by his telling it was that he, he was, uh, I think he, he had like a bunch of points on his license or something, he, or he didn't have insurance. So he, he asked if she could come pick him up and on her way over to, to him, uh, she was killed and he carried an enormous weight of guilt from this. And, um, he channeled it into, um, writing this story and, and drawing these comics and he kind of, he pushed all of his influences into it. He was, uh, heavily into the kind of early goth, rock he was a huge joy division fan a lot of the um chapters are named after joy division songs which later in in the film you get to hear uh that that really pretty fantastic nine inch nails cover um of, of joy division and so it took him a long time to write the book he kind of taught him he was he was he wasn't a trained writer or a trained artist he just sort of taught himself and uh, it was very trial and error and very underground black and white comic book that was short run published but by the late eight uh yeah by the by the end of the 80s it's kind of a phenomenon like it was a by his telling a tremendously successful independent comic possibly one of the more successful maybe even most successful indie comics maybe up there with something like teenage mutant ninja turtles which was also a big indie comic success but um uh it was it was hugely influential in the comics business a lot of uh artist writers and creators would have cited his success with this as the reason why they would go on to do these kind of artist generated comic books rather than you know um stories and characters which would be passed from one set of writers and set of artists to another uh, so the, the comics were optioned. Uh, at one point he almost sold the rights outright, literally part and parcel, everything, uh, for a, a cash offer because he wasn't in particularly good financial shape. Uh, apparently no matter how successful your underground black and white indie comic is, you're not getting rich off it. Hmm. Uh, but luckily he realized or he was in, he was, uh, told that he was in, he, he had quite a, a, a property on his hands that he should really reconsider. And, uh, and, and then the, the option was, I think, picked up by, so it was Edward Pressman and Jeff Most, I believe, are the two, uh, producers on this one, the lead producers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, Alex Proyas, who at this point had only directed one film in australia a very strange prog rock thing we'll talk about alex Proyas a lot later i'm sure oh yes was, we was, will. was brought in and he and he seemed to have quite a vision for it and brandon lee was brought on board very early as well and he actually uh 
had a hand in kind of guiding the um the direction of the thing and james obar was was uh was involved as well so it was a it was a real hands-on production well i found a quote that um from james obar it said i as i drew each page it made me more self-destructive if anything this there is pure anger on each page mm. and uh i wanted to ask you is it true that it was also inspired by the real murder of a couple for a, a 20 dollar engagement ring did you did you is that true yeah 20 dollar 30 dollar engagement ring which was a new story that he read and um but the, when reading the comic, we, again, we'll, we'll probably talk about some of the changes that they made to the story because um, they were necessary because they're as a comic book, um, it is an exercise in in the kind of yeah, it's it's a it's a rage, it's a, a howl of rage as as, mm-hmm. a, as it comes off the page, and it's it's um, it doesn't have what you would think of as a very obvious structure. But it clearly resonated with people, and I think the reason it resonated was just because it was so clearly a work that was born out of somebody's genuine anguish. And as as kind of morbid as that is, I think that that's a an impulse that a lot of people have is to seek out that level of authenticity in art, even if it's kind of ghoulish, you know. Well, with that, then Devlin, do you have a plot summary for The Crow, the film? I do indeed. Devil's Night, Detroit: colon. Hangman's joke frontman Eric Draven and his beautiful fiancée Shelley are brutally murdered on the eve of their Halloween wedding by a gang on the orders of psychotic dandy kingpin Top Dollar, a sword-wielding dealer of both drugs and chaos, with a a sadistic sorceress for a sister lover. One year later, emerging from his grave in the driving rain under the watchful eye of a raven pretending to be a crow. We'll get into that later. (laughs) Can't train crows, they have to use ravens. Um, The resurrected Eric finds that he is now impervious to injury and commits to a path of retributory destruction against the villains that took his true love away from him. T-Bird, Skank, Tintin, and Funboy. Aided by jaded good cop officer Albrecht, Ernie Hudson. Her avenging angel watches over a young latchkey kid called Sarah, whose junkie mother, Dala, has found herself embroiled with Funboy. He broods on rooftops, jamming sick goth riffs, and exacts painful revenge on his way to a, rain- a rain-swept church rooftop showdown with Top Dollar, whose plans for a night of mayhem Eric has derailed by killing all of his gangland associates in a flurry of bullets. However, shorn of his healing abilities after Top Dollar's wily conciliary, Grange, Tony Todd, clips the wings of his spirit bird with a sniper rifle. Eric is run through with a sword and all hope seems lost. But armed only with the visceral pain of losing his loved one so brutally, he weaponizes it, transferring it to Top Dollar, who, overcome, falls and impales himself on a gargoyle. An ailing draven crawls atop Shelley's grave and is reunited in death with her forevermore. Yay! That is beautiful. When you said but dandy I- then, I just pictured Top Dollar as Russell Brand. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I also undercut your very Sorry. somber and beautiful plot summary by the fact that the small research I did do about the raven being the crow, yep. it just reminded me so much of The Simpsons. Oh, yeah, Listen, yeah. Uh, <laughs> cows don't look like cows on screen. You have to paint horses. <laughs> Yeah, we're just, we're just a bunch of cats together. <laughs> what do you want? What do you do when you have a horse? <laughs> the whole raven being used as a crow, 
Um, I guess that's just because what ravens are what easier to tame and they're bigger. This crow doesn't read. Get me a raven. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny enough, though, in the film. There was something I wanted to bring up, which, cause he quotes some Edgar Allan Poe, doesn't he? Like, he does. wrapping up my uh, chamber door. And that's from the Raven. And his yes. surname is yeah. Draven. <laughs> so I was like, why have I got all the Raven, like, stuff in, but it's the crow? Devlin, please tell me that the Draven is not in the comic, cause it's stupid. Uh, the, uh, the name Draven? I all the names are, right? They're all the same, I think. Yeah. Uh, Officer Olbrecht is a, uh, he's a kind of amalgam of two characters in the comic. There's, uh, there is an Officer Olbrecht and he does meet Eric in the same situation, which is outside of Gideon's after an explosion. But, um, and he does talk to him about his wife who's left him. But, mm. uh, the, the more kindly aspects are the captain, the police captain. Good old Ernie Hudson. He was my favorite Ghostbuster for a long time. Put him on the poster, you shits. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, before we get into the story and the characters and all that, I have been dying ever since you picked this to talk about one Alex Proyas. I did go on a little um, Proyas little venture today and I watched um, iRobot and... The Crowded House video for Don't Dream It's Over. I watched Knowing, <laughs> which I've never seen before. Gosh. Fuck me. Uh, yeah, I've seen no. the end of Knowing. It's fucking bonkers. <laughs> it is bonkers. Yeah, man. It's, well, it's Nicolas Cage. I mean, Nicolas Cage. It's, it's, he's perfect for it, isn't he? It's so stupid, but it's also yeah. really fun. Like the way that the 9-11 angle that they just crowbar in when he's like 11 and a nine. <gasps> oh my god. It was nine eleven. Oh my god. Oh, Hollywood should here? be banned from films about numerology, honestly. They're too thin. <laughs> it was when the plane crashed and people were still alive and he was helping them. Mm. Isn't there a cow what, what on is fire as well? <laughs> is there a cow on fire? And maybe a, maybe a cow, I don't know. I might be I couldn't see through the tears of laughter. No, but, but what an interesting career, right? Because whatever I think of the crow, you know, in my final thoughts and was we talked through, um, its merits and some of, some of the things that, um, that I'm, I don't quite jive with. Everything, everything to do with the crow's powers, everything to do with Eric's powers is told visually. And I just thought, well, here's someone who really knows how to, to sort of impart this without having to tell you. Like the film doesn't yeah. give you a, a step by step guide of the powers that the crow mm-hmm. gives. Eric, it's literally all done visually. And I was just thought, I thought, oh, oh, I'm really enjoying the fact that we don't need to have a, a sit down with someone who goes, Crow's mm. powers are this. He, this yeah, this. he never talks it through with anyone. There's no expository dialogue. Do you think that comes from a music video background from the director? Has to be. Has to be, right? And some of the sequences as well are done in that style. And he really does, he's got an ear yeah. for, for music yeah. and a visual. And there's a little bit, I mean, this is not to ding it because I really enjoy the video, but there's a little bit of Michael Bay's um, I'll Do Anything For You meatloaf video in there with the flashbacks. There is. Reminded yeah. me of it. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, yeah. an, that's a compliment because I think it's one of the best things Michael Bay has ever directed. And, and, and Proyas has got that. So then I was asking the question, how the fuck did the guy who made The Crow make Gods of Egypt? He's not made many films. That's the thing. He's, 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 he's been around for a while, but um, when you look at his, he's one of those directors I always assumed had made more and that possibly he'd made some real kind of, you know, forgettable trite, but everything's kind of swung for the fences in a, in one way or another and has either come up short or has been a little bit of a success. But uh, I have not seen Dark City in a very long time. I actually recorded it 
uh, on TV a couple of weeks ago and I never got around to watching it, which is a real shame because I know a lot of people have a lot of time for it. I don't know. Have, have any of you guys seen it either recently? I haven't or seen it. it. No, not for a long time, but I remember it being a little bit like delicatessen, like whatever you think of the story, the world he creates and the visuals, uh, they're very unique and it's very distinct mm. and the crow is a similar thing where you can you can ding it for whatever but it looks in my opinion incredible considering the budget and oh, what they achieve with it i think it looks great budget wise it was uh, um i believe it's 80 million total something around there for for the crow yes uh 23 23 but apparently they were all screaming they were saying we need 30 we need 30 yeah. like but there's some uh eight million of that was um was completion funding given to them kind of post uh um post accident really was like that this was what they needed to finish the the film with all the additional digital compositing that needed to be done and stuff so I guess the original production budget would have been would have been far far lower especially with the the visuals that you see Dublin like and even with that extra relief money. Yeah, this is kind of groundbreaking CGI yeah. use that I, I mean, I didn't watch it on the greatest format, uh, stream it onto my TV from my laptop, but I, I didn't really, Matt, you said it kind of hindered your first viewing, knowing that mm. the, the certain aspect to it, maybe you were looking out for certain things, but I, I genuinely, you know, my first viewing, my only viewing that I had, I, I wanted one show of this to, to react to and listen to Devlin. I didn't notice and it didn't, it didn't distract me or anything. And I was really glad of that because it was obviously on my mind before the film yeah. and throughout, uh, it wasn't till after I was like, Oh, okay, let me look into that now. And then I saw, you know, there's some, um, strobe lighting things. I thought, Oh, maybe there. And, you know, and, yep. but not when I was watching it, which I was really pleased with. What was great. And I think kind of goes along with what you were saying, Gally, of, of that he's a visual filmmaker is that, um, the stuff that they still had to complete at the end of filming after uh, Brandon Lee's accident, after he passed away was, um, was basically everything that happens within the apartment set, which includes the transformation of him into the crow, which includes the time when Sarah comes back to, to try and find him. And um, the way they got around it brilliantly was, was mostly just done by never showing him from the front. Which silhouette stunt doubles everything, which just really clever. Uh, um, it's it's great in that what it does is it just it it makes you have to just revert to iconography. And and the one thing that they did was create a fantastic silhouette of him, considering there's not much to the the costume. the The makeup is quite mm. simple, but it's it's very striking. But it's really just it's a a kind of tall, lean dude in kind of black trousers with either a tight black top or no top and some mm-hmm. hair. And yeah. it's a, uh, like all the great kind of comic book creations, it's instantly recognizable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they just played with like mm-hmm. pure iconography. Even with the, the big leather jacket that you have on as well, Devlin, I think the, yes. the, uh, the, the symbol of him, the, the silhouette of him, the shape was still the same. And you, you're absolutely right. His visual stylistics there would have really helped, you know, the framing in the circular window, Mm. especially that that's an image that's kind of lasted with me I, I couldn't see where it where it begins and ends if you know mm. uh it it was it was just on my mind but uh, technically i think it is an accomplishment i think you're absolutely right I, as far as i was concerned again just talking about the visual style of alex Proyas, the opening shot where they're floating through which felt 
like you could argue, mm. okay, is this is this an extension of Tim Burton's Batman? But with, with shots like that, when they float through when they float through cities, if it hasn't got any if it hasn't got any meaning or purpose, then it's just a shot that's there to look cool. Yeah. But it did have meaning because it's the crow flowing through the city, and that's what I was just like, this is this is great. This is really quite clever and in, and inventive. And again, mm. it just leads me to think, like Alex Proyas, what happened? Like I know he's swinging for the fences, but I was like you, Devlin. I thought he was like a Rennie Harlan who'd made like yes. thirty films, and just because he'd done iRobot, and I remember that being like a you know a, a kind of middling blockbuster thing, which had some ideas, but was maybe hamstrung by some fucking awful, awful product placement, which was just really blatant. And yeah, it was a weird time in the, in the star persona of, of Will Smith, and he kind of. It was, it was a it was a bad fit. Mm. Hey, I quite like it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's got ideas. It's, it's, it's perfectly easy to watch. Yeah. The, the, some of the design work in that is great as well, like the design mm-hmm. of robots and stuff. And... You know, I was watching it today, though. You don't really get any of those visuals that I attribute with the crow and that stylistic camera movements and, and yeah. how, how good this until the end of the film. And I thought it was a real shame in iRobot because I didn't attribute it to the same director till some action sequences near the end. And Hmm. You know, Gally, you, you, yeah, it made me wonder what what happens to well, the God, Gods of Egypt, Patrick, is it's not only just a dreadful script, it's a dreadfully made film. It, it's it awful, looks yeah. dreadful. It's the, it's the worst kind of, um, like, green screen, let's all stand around on the soundstage. There's no shot selection. Everyone's just like, it's, it's so like a, it's prequels level of just, yeah, flatness. And it's insane. It's also absolutely insane. It is, it is mental, but not in a good way. Not in a so bad it's good. But I, I remember as well in being overly precious because I remember Mark Commode on his uh, weekly radio show when he reviewed it, sort of laughing at the fact that Alex Proyas had got all sensitive and precious about his crap Gods of Egypt film. Did you get the? Um, did you get the quotes? I got some quotes if you want to hear. No, it. I didn't. What did he <laughs> yes, say? Please. Alex Proyas had some of the worst write-ups. Like people were saying, Gods of Egypt is like the flat out worst film of the year, and it was hugely <laughs> expensive. Like it was a, it's a big film, so it's a big target. So of course people are going to give it some shit, and it is rubbish. Uh, it's got Brian Brown in it. Yeah, it's got Brian Egyptian Brown. God. Brilliant. And he has said that uh, critics are diseased vultures pecking at the bones of a dying carcass. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to peck to the rhythm of the consensus. I applaud any filmgoer who values wow. their own opinion enough not to base it on what the pack mentality says is good or bad. It is shit. This is the only film and I've seen with Brandon Lee in, though, guys, I don't know whether you've seen any of the films with him in. I know he did. I used to really enjoy the kind of the schlocky action films. I was very much a Van Damme fan. And anything sort of adjacent at that level I was into. So I saw him in Rapid Fire, uh, which I enjoyed. And, um, oh God, I'll get Is that with Dolph Lundgren? It is with Dolph. I think um, so. He was in, he's in something. Is he in Showdown in Little Tokyo? He's in Showdown in Little Tokyo, which was another one. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've seen him in those. But I will say, I will say this. And again, this is not to talk disparagingly, especially about somebody who died tragically on set. I do wonder if, the reputation slightly got inflated because as much as I think he's good in this in parts, I think he's got real energy and he's definitely got like his physicality is fantastic. Some of his line delivery is a little bit wobbly, but uh, you know, that's, 
yeah, that's that's where I sat with it. But he looks Hollywood. I thought when I was watching it, he's got the mm. big old smile and he's very handsome. And yeah, I, I really thought he has quite a, quite a presence in this film. And I could see that this could have been kind of a breakout role for more mainstream film for him. There, there was a debate raging at the time, apparently, um, whether or not you know an extent of the of the film's power actually lies in that morbid mm. fascination of of Lee's death. Uh, and sadly, I actually think it is still a deciding factor. I think it's a, a really strong visual film, but without that morbid fascination, I don't think it becomes a cult hit yeah. to the same degree. I think it would still have a huge number of fans. And, uh, but yeah, there's something about that, that, that his death that, that brought more attention mm-hmm. to the film than it perhaps would have had otherwise. Yeah. I, I would, I would probably agree with that. I, I don't think it persists for as long as it has. Um, without that, it's uh, any of the kind of the, the artists who are taken tragically young, especially, I think, and this is probably going to sound, um, more harsh than I intend it to, but, um, usually it's not just like, uh, you know, talented people or, or people who are in the entertainment industry who are taken young, but also like super handsome or particularly good looking people who are taken young. Yeah. I'm thinking yeah. of the likes of, um, like, uh, um, I mean, he kind of resembles him a little, like, uh, Jeff Buckley, who similarly. Yeah, yeah, he does. Had a, had yeah. a, had yeah. a breakthrough. Totally. And, uh, you know, he left this, this what, this one album and some live recordings and some demos, and that's the only thing he had. And it's like, it's this really small body of work, but it's, um, it'll persist, not just because it's very good, but also because it represents, um, like a, a, a memento mori of, of, and like a, a sad reminder of that that there could have been more and there should have been more. There was a behind the scenes interview of him on YouTube uh, on set in 93 and he's just smoking and he's super cool and he sounds really smart. And there was, there was shades of Heath Ledger as well because they died at like the same age. I think we can get into the the Nolan Batman stuff a bit later as far as influences go, but there was definitely a, a Heath Ledger vibe to it too. Matt, let's just get into it now because um, one of the one of the things that I thought was it can't be a coincidence. the The first kill for the crow once he's um, once he's assimilated his power is on Tintin, and he grabs Tintin, and his voice changes, mm. and it mm. reminded me so much. He says something like, um, "You'll remember," and his voice goes really deep, and it reminded me of the Joker in Dark Knight when he's captive uh, one of the sort of Batman imitators and he shouts, mm. like, look at me, and then goes back to being jokey, jokey, mm. Joker. And I thought that yeah, could be yeah. a coincidence. Man and woman in law a year ago. <laughs> Motherfucking mom. Listen! I'm sure you'll remember. You killed him on Halloween. Yeah, yeah, okay. Halloween, yeah. Some do, some bitch, whatever, man. Well, I had a list here of of stuff like this, this whole idea of a vigilante that you can mm-hmm. tie in. Uh, there's a bit where Guy of Gisborne says, um, uh, disorder, chaos, anarchy. Uh, now that's fun. Yep. And that just reminded me of, of the Joker. And he, he kind of appears and disappears yeah. like Batman. Um, that he hangs out on fire escapes. Yeah. He's sometimes upside down. Uh, there's also a line that says he does that a lot yeah. in reference to him appearing and vanishing, which is to- total Gary Nolan uh, Batman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he has a close friendship with a cop, which is exactly like uh, Commissioner Gordon. Yeah. 
the crow logo is emblazoned on a wall, and then there's the big fiery one on the ground, mm-hmm. which is straight out of it's either Dark Knight or Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, Dark Knight yeah. Rises. Yeah. And then there's bad guys around a table confronted by uh, a painted faced man. It's just the same stuff. Uh, he throws Sarah off the roof, uh, Guy of Gisborne, uh, during the standoff. And that's just like Rachel when she goes out the window in. Um, you said Rachel's wrong, uh, Matt. It's Rachel! <laughs> Rachel! <laughs> yeah. The Guy of Gisborne fight at the top felt like a direct lift from Burton's Batman Joker battle. On top. Well, yeah, that was the weird thing. The bats in the belfry bit. I had that as well. You know, when, when, uh, Bai Ling gets her eyes pecked out. Yes. Uh, as they're going up those steps, it just feels like Tim Burton's Batman 90. You know, it just, it's exactly like that, it, that vibe. So who's stealing from who? I don't know, but somebody's ripping someone off. Interestingly, Matt, that, that scene, you know, when all the kind of gangster bag goes around that table with Guy Gisborne. Yeah. Uh, Michael Wincott. Um, I'm sorry, Michael Wincott. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying calling him Guy Gisborne. Though. Um, no, cause no. he's got a great voice. I love that actor's voice. But when, uh, Eric, when the crow, when he enters that room, if you do a shot by shot comparison to scene in the dark mm. night, when the Joker comes in and the mafia guy's talking on the television, just to throw the pencil, pencil trick. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The shot introducing them both in those scenes are almost shot for shot. Yeah. The compositions yeah. are identical yeah. in, 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 and there's like singles on some of the guys around the table that are just identical too. It has to be a nod, right? His, his strange kind of, uh, the, the way he carries himself and how, when he when he walks up to the table, he pulls the chair away and he hops up and he does his little leg cross mm-hmm. and sit down. That kind of um, yeah. you were saying that his physicality is 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 a real boon mm-hmm. in this, but that yeah, the strange way he sort of enters. There's the uh, when the cops after the big shootout when the cops ask him to freeze and he puts his hands up and then he sort of rotates to one side and does a little jig. Like I said, the best parts of this are when he's uh, physically acting. And probably less when he's um, when he's actually got dialogue, but he he jumps up and down, and then he smart he has a wry smile, and then goes back to being serious. And it all felt very. I'm not suggesting that Heath Ledger just went, "Oh, I'll do that," but he he must have seen this film and thought, mm-hmm. "Well, yeah. here's a performance that really will will hit and fits the Joker character." And you know, the the comparisons mm-hmm. with the makeup, you can obviously a direct. But they're there, right? I mean, they're absolutely yeah. there. Yeah, but that that would be taken from Batman and from either Mark Miller or Bob Kane, right? And no, uh, no of course, yeah. I'm just I'm surely. talking about gen- the fil- the films and performances, yeah. less yeah. about the comics. It's, it's I mean, probably, I wouldn't uh, know which one. It's probably a little first. influence go around. So you know, if you're going to make a comic book movie in 1993, you're obviously only getting your money to make a comic book movie because Tim Burton made all the money with Batman and the more goth, the better. So I mean, yeah. like I said, but there's also, nothing in that comic that really screams that this is going to be, you know, a big, a big hit. This is like a guy, um, androgynously drawn goth with big spiky hair. Uh, and in the comic, he doesn't, the majority of the plot, while it's similar, there's, it doesn't have any of the same kind of arcs. It is just like a kind of, it's a, it's scene after scene after scene of just like grotesque bloodletting, with poetry kind of scrawled across it and then it will cut back to you'll see just lots of scenes of uh eric in his burnt out house just um brooding crying sometimes dancing but in a really sad way i love it when he's playing the guitar on the roof yeah (laughs) but surely is the artist a fan of alice cooper because 
Sure. Uh, yeah, they'd, they'd taken uh, some some influence from that, mostly kind of a little more on the sort of industrial kind of heavier side of. But but yeah, he he admitted that the the, but, the yeah. makeup is is influenced by Alice Cooper. Definitely had to be that that way that he puts the makeup on. You know, when he's transforming, that was. It's a really cool section. Yes. Mm. Don't dwell on it as well, because the more you dwell on it, the sillier it gets. <laughs> in, in, in any film like this, it's like anytime you do a comic book thing, you have to just like, you don't overladen the kind of costuming and stuff. It's like, you know, they always say that they'd struggle to make a Superman film now because why the fuck would he wear red underpants on his blue outfit? So like, yeah, you can't, <laughs> you can't talk about it. You just, it just has to be and the audience will just accept it. The, the, you, you mentioned Burton and obviously again, one of the other sort of direct comparisons, although I'm going to slightly disagree with the consent. So I read some reviews and some contemporary ones and also uh, more recent ones and they, they all seem to say, oh, well, it's very influenced by Tim Burton. But I actually thought the world that Proyas created was far more sort of Victorian. And um, yes, it's gothic, but it goes way further than Tim Burton's Batman. This is more, I mean, even Batman Returns is still goofy, still got cat heads. You know, this is, this is. It's more Batman Begins. Yeah, it really is. It, it like, is, yeah. It's it's monochromatic in its color palette. And, and there's, there's some colors that pop, but most of the time, you know, it reminded me a little bit of Fincher's Seven in areas, and then every now and again a bit of levity came in. Well, did you get any uh, Sin City vibes as well? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because that's that's another f- yeah. faithful comic adaptation. Uh, the shots kind of look like a graphic novel. They actually look like panels at times, I thought. Mm. And uh, so I got February 1989 for the Crow comic yeah. and April 91 for Sin City. But I don't know, maybe they, he looked at Frank Miller's work from earlier and, and you know, that could have influenced it. But, you know, there, there could be, it, it's like a messy thing in terms of who, who took what and when. But I, I feel like there's still a Sin City connection in, in, in areas, particularly when you look at both comic uh, styles. Yes. Uh, that like b- very black panels and uh, stark kind of. Yeah. A, a contrasty and and uh, shots, a, way of, but, yeah. a way of drawing people which veers away from from kind of verisimilitude they're not going to for you know very accurate depictions of the human form obviously frank miller no. the he got the more mentally got in terms of i don't know if you guys have seen yeah. any like of frank miller stuff from the recent years but uh yeah he's drawing some crazy <laughs> just scratchy sacks of inky meat Instead well, of even being right, his recent back. it definitely feels like a movement, though, right? Like at the, at the same time, this kind of yeah. expressionistic graphic novels, as they were called. Yeah, there was one shot that reminded me that, that the only thing I could really tie between the two films where he he leaps down and kind of lands, and he lands like Marv lands. The, the, the <laughs> position of the crouch, it just it was very Mickey Rourke landing right but that, that was the one of the only real kind of visual things i could find until i looked at the pages of the comic book which which are really reminiscent of uh of since going on something you said gally about like brandon lee's acting capabilities <laughs> in a way I, I first time ever seeing it i i fully at the beginning of the film i kind of expected and was was fully prepared for a no dialogue performance from him it kind of had that tone mm. for me that would have just been this silent assassin wreaking his havoc and revenge. But mm. I, I, I know what you're saying about some of the dialogue, but I thought he pulls off some of it quite well. I think no, no, I, I, I think, I think the, the scene, the scene where it didn't, it felt like it thudded a little bit was when he is reciting. I think he says a line <laughs> to Darla with the heroin. It's a great, it's a, 
like visually it's a really wonderful scene the way in the, the, in the bathroom to expel in the yeah. bathroom yeah and he's looking directly in the mirror and she's looking in the mirror i think he says something about his mother mother is the name for god on the hearts on lips and hearts of all children it's a, it's a tough bit of dialogue to to pull it's up. a tough bit of dialogue it's though very, don't get me wrong it's very earnest which is a thing that i guess is I thought was a word that came up for me loads, which is, this is a very earnest film in many ways. Look. Mother is the name for God on the lips and hearts of all children. Do you understand? Morphine is bad for you. When you get scenes of, of Eric in dialogue specifically that stuff but especially the sequence that he has later on where he goes to speak to officer albrecht mm-hmm. and he's kind of oh he's my un- favorite intro to the scene yeah he's un- <laughs> unexpectedly soft-spoken and you know really like vulnerable and um i think that's the sort of stuff that that helps keep this film kind of interesting and, and give it a bit of rewatch value it really does have like you know its heart isn't mm-hmm the right place. No, he's wearing it on I think yeah, uh, on t- talking of <laughs> Officer Albrecht and with Ernie, um, Ernie Hudson, I think he has some clumsy lines throughout it. Yes. They give him some, some quite tacky jokes. Yeah. But he's also yeah. introduced in that scene wearing boxes of vest and his police hat, which is, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. which I burst out laughing at. It was amazing yeah. to see him. It, <laughs> I just what an image that was. That was so strange. Yeah. You, you mentioned the pawn shop earlier where, and that was the only time I really felt Bruce Lee's presence. Like it was during the delivery and the performance mm. when he's doing the, the, the Edgar Allan Poe quote, that there's just something about the way he read that, that reminded me of, uh, of his dad. So that was one of the only times that kind of shone through. So I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. It's his cadence, isn't it? And that mm. he's, um, he's, he's got it absolutely nailed down. What I is one. Cause I found, I'll, I'll tell you now what I thought. Um, but what do we think about starting the film with uh, narration from the young child actress? Because I'll say yeah. now, not to, not to sort of, yeah, Sarah, because I thought with the way, the sort of the supernatural element and also the sort of fantastical element of the film, I thought it was quite smart because it kind of made me sort of approach it from a child's perspective, which is anything can happen yeah. when you're a child. You are, you know, the world is not bound by the rules that you kind of set in when you're an adult and you're like, Santa isn't true, isn't, there's fake, two fairies fake, crows fake. It, it does give a certain fantasy to it, doesn't it, Gunny? It does, yeah. And normally I ding child actors and just generally having child characters. And voiceovers in general. Yeah. And voiceovers. But I kind of, I kind of judge with it. I liked it. I thought it was just, it was, it was a good way of getting us into mm. this world. And like I say, Proyas then just, Dishes out all the information pretty much visually, apart from how to make a hot dog. That's talk. What's the, the, is it about 15 minutes into the film where you get the shot, you know, the, the big zoom, the big zoom out of him standing framed in the thing with the lightning and you see the makeup for the first time and he's got the crow on his shoulder and there you go. There's your icon. There's your image. And it's mm. about 15 minutes, mm. right? On the time. Oh, it's thrifty. You gotta appreciate that. I watched, um, the crow yeah. two city of angels. Now we will talk. <laughs> franchise later but i um that film was a very fleet 80 something minutes but um there's a uh the version i watched because i'm a cheapskate and i didn't want to pay money for it i watched a uh a pirated copy of the um oh there's a, dis- uh, a director's assembly cut because apparently uh um mm. harvey 
evil Harvey and the Weinstein boys got hold of, because of course this is a Miramax Dimension film. Uh, Mm. They decided second in a row, by the way. And uh, yes, yeah, plenty of dimension. And uh, they went ahead and they took a two hour plus film that was turned in for the Crow 2 City of Angels and turned it into an 83 minute film, which made no sense. Um, but what I will say I is that here, this run, this, yeah, this runtime, um, it does feel like it, it feels very lean, but it doesn't feel like, um, like we lost anything. I don't particularly think that there was, uh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have padded this out in any way. I think it was pace wise. I thought it was fantastic. Like I watched mm. it twice in the space of a week and the second time was, was just as fun as the first time. Well, I have a couple of things relating to, to, uh, the idea of it being a revenge tale and, and how it could be improved. And I, I would have altered a couple of little things perhaps, but these are just ideas, but, uh, it, it, it didn't really, um, move me particularly. I think it should have moved me more. Um, and for a film with such a violent and tragic premise, it, it failed to engage a little bit. So I, I was wondering why, and I, I was kind of viewing it from afar as if I was watching a world that was very unfamiliar to me. And, uh, there was a lot of flashy efforts to impress, uh, but it, it does come back to that old adage of you have to care about the characters. And I, I wondered, you know, cause I did care, but like not to, not to the extent that I wanted. And I enjoyed watching him get his vengeance and the bad guys getting their comeuppance, but it, it left me cold in terms of the, the connection to Draven for some reason. And I wondered if it was because we didn't see enough of his life with his fiance prior to the murders. And, you wanted a uh, scene, Matt, between the two of them that was an actual scene and not uh, a kind well, of... Well, I want to hear her speak. I don't know if she really says too much. Um, I mean, and I get what they were doing because they, they were just cramming it. That's that's about as far as it goes, right? <laughs> does she say, I love oh, you, and says, he I says, say it again. Oh, yeah, she does speak, yeah. He, he yeah, says, say it does, again, but... and it's a tender moment. But I, 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 I know what you're saying, Matt. I kind of yeah. agree. It, it, it's this thing like they're trying to set up a premise quickly and I get it totally. But like how many times in the films that we love is the setup and the build just as good, if not better than the payoff. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. like the journey and not the destination. Um, so uh, I felt like I didn't really know Shelley and her rape and murder is at the core of the piece. So like it's the motivation for everything that Draven does and perhaps more of a traditional opening and a little less posturing later and eyeball eating, you know, it would have, would have got me on side a bit more. Yeah. And, and there's this other thing with Shelley camp campaigning for tenants rights. Um, but wouldn't a scene of that have helped a little bit? It, see her with some friends yeah. or see her with some other people or Eric, just see her life a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I just felt like that whole tenants home invasion thing, uh, with the guy from commando, uh, <laughs> it, it was like, you know, it, it wasn't quite clear to me how all that unfolded. Matt, in my notes, I, I had exactly the same thing and I was trying to yeah. figure out how to, it, the film is a lot of, and I say this in a polite way because I, I, I don't think it fails in this style over substance. Yeah. But where if I, mm. if I was to have more characterization and development and the substance that I'd wanted, what, why wasn't Sarah, their, their child, for example, or why wasn't the relationship between Eric and Sarah explored more when he came back and checked in on her, her, you know, he, he's very revenge driven, but we would have got a bit of a more of an emotional pull and, and, um, em- empathetic towards him if he'd had more time with Sarah. Mm. Uh, you know, he has the Dala moment. And we already said that scene didn't quite work for us, but mm. it, it, that's where I saw that they missed a beat, Matt. 
Yeah. Well, I, I had one other thing with, with Top Dollar. And I feel like that was a slight anticlimax as he wasn't actually personally responsible for the rape or the murder. He just gave the order. So we also don't find out that he was involved until the very end when they clash on the rooftop. So seeing Top Dollar a bit earlier might have helped. Mm. Um, and killing killing the bad guys one at a time and ending with the, the, the main boss, Top Dollar, would have would have helped. But I also heard that in the comic book version, he's just one of the villains he's one of the generic kind of villains yes. rather than a boss he, he was actually altered for the movie is that right yeah that's that's true and he is just dispatched by being shot in the head in a chair but i i thought that they wasted the counselieri tony todd like he's there he seems to be the smartest yeah. one or at least the a lot of people waste tony he's todd investigating oh. oh they do they do bless <laughs> him. But, um, he's always but wasted he's always wasted but well i just you know, thought they well, didn't let got him do him. the voice because otherwise that between him and Michael Wincott both grumbling away, you would not. <laughs> it would be too much. His name is Guy Gisborne. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Yeah. If, if, uh... Sheriff's cousin. <laughs> you know, you know, Guy Gisborne's and Byling's introduction. Uh, yes. This is another thing that I found a little bit <laughs> mis- misleading. Uh, cause that, that's a dead woman. Next yeah. to them, right? No, they tired her out in the in the threesome, right? Well, yeah, oh, is that what it was? Is they right? tired her out to the point that they killed her. <laughs> right, okay. Oh, and then when they take her eyes, she's dead, right? Yeah, well, when they roll is, is her, that over, the her eyes are wide open. And they, I, and, I got and a I little confused. Oh, I think, I think we <laughs> broke her. <laughs> right, right, right. That makes right. more sense. It's setting but, them up as being yeah. so kind of fucked up and sadistic. That yeah, I get that more now. But you know what, Devlin? I, I fully thought... They were being introduced there. You know, like Michael King looks, looks like a vampire in this, yes. like so like a vampire. I thought they mm. were going to be supernatural as well. Uh, and some mm. sort of big bad in that respect that they were, you know, like he, he can't get injured. I thought they were going to be the same. Um, well, that, that led me to something else I was thinking about. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the matrix, uh, cause I, I got a bit of a matrix vibe. Leather jackets, um, Matt. How did you make that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, there's the blatant stuff, but there's the, a lot of rooftop running. Uh, oh, yeah. Reminded me of the Trinity opening. Yep. And uh, there's this pumping soundtrack and, uh, you know, obviously gunfights, slow-mo, leather, two pistols. And they're playing, uh, it's uh, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, which is the very kind of techno rock. Yeah, yeah, and, I mean, totally. That, that, yeah, that kind of techno. Yeah, you, you can see the Wachowskis would have loved this film, right? Yeah, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. totally. Well, I, I was never impressed by all that kind of melee action. <gasps> like, even when I saw the Matrix, actually, I, I felt like I'd seen it before in some form or another. Even though I hadn't seen Bullet Time and all that done exactly that way, I'm a little bit old school. I like the logical geography of things like Die Hard, where a director can establish where we are clearly. And like the antithesis of all that being like Michael Bay's Transformer years where everything is just clanking metal and a blur of stuff happening. You don't really know what's going on. Um, but like th- this idea I wanted to say about uh, fallible real characters, Eric seemed too invincible to fully fear for his safety. Uh, and like, and that's perhaps one of the negatives of having your like protagonist be basically a walking unkillable superhero and like superhero films kind of turn me off too like outside of nolan obviously like they don't really have much clout with me because they're all kind of invincible gods battling each other and and that doesn't really do anything for me and that what you were saying there patrick about giving them some kind of a power a supernatural 
element that would would create a more of a level playing field between them and and Draven may have helped things. Yeah, they, they achieve it later with the crow clipping yeah. of the wings and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, but I I thought that was I thought that's what the introduction was 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 setting up for us. Well, I, um, I guess um, yeah. that that was why I was thinking that by by making them be you know obsessed with the occult and the kind of weirdos that you know set fire to eyeballs and suck all the smoke out of them and because <laughs> um, uh, that do lots of coke. Yeah, exactly. That's that's not from the that's not from the comic. There was nothing like that, and they um, by having them be just sort of vaguely weirdo mystical types. Um, yeah. It meant that they, they're hinting at it. Yeah, they're going it for meant it, right? That they understood that something was going on with him that was beyond uh, the the rational. So it made them uniquely suited to be able to outwit him. And then, because uh, uh, when I was watching this with um, Kiara, she said the same thing, which is that um, we actually watched it over two nights, kind of first hour and then the last half hour. And um, there was a point at which, like, we're well into it, but she said when he was getting shot a lot and nothing bad was happening to him, she was like, well. There's not really much he can do when he can't die. So then when uh, yeah. in the church, when he gets shot and he actually feels it, she was genuinely kind of, she didn't see it coming. And it was, it actually had a, a quite an impact and it really ups the stakes for the end. So I, I, I always figure that it just, for me, it just about gets away with it by just being such a kind of, um, such a snappy runtime. Yeah, it's it's comic mm-hmm. booky, Devlin. Mm-hmm. I, I do. I think gets away with it. You said something earlier about the pace of it. I think the editing and and the the sheer shot selection in the film and through the sequences. I think it's very comic booky and it achieves yeah. that very well uh, as a translation. I've got to agree with Patrick and Matt on this one, though, Dev. So I, I thought that that the the sort of the big bad and the escalation was slightly wasted because I did feel like Guy of Gisborne could have had. Uh, a more of a supernatural <laughs> slant. Yeah. I guess, I guess that's why Bailing is playing mystical Asian character who can kind of fulfill that, um, you know, sort of conduit between understanding what the crow is without really, with, by seeing it's, it I once. Mean, and it's, then... uh, in retrospect, uh, but, it, it's a thing that people talk about. It's, it's, it's retrospectively a kind of uncomfortable orientalist kind of thing of, Oh no, matter, yeah. I mean, and I knew, and I, and I knew you would because she's yeah. from somewhere else. And I knew you would flag that up. But the one thing, the one thing I will say, the one thing I will say is that I do think the film positions um, the crow and top dollar. There's a duality there, isn't there? Because they both enjoy theatricality. Mm. So the mm. way that um, Top Dollar is dressed, and even he's got that bloody like Louis the Fourth sword thing. <laughs> he has kills an entire, go- he kills that. Yeah, he does. And but how does uh, how does Eric dispatch of um, of the the gang? Well, it's all theatricality, right? You know the the heroine, the knives, the the crow. So I liked the way that they had duality between mm. our protagonist and antagonist. Mm-hmm. I just wish they set it up so the fight. It felt slightly anticlimactic. If you had to work out how to defeat them, it would have been maybe a bit better. It ended slightly prematurely for me, but it was a you know it was a lovely ending. I loved the shot where he's you know, the blood's coming out the gargoyle's mouth. That was quite <laughs> cool. But I did have one issue with it, um, which was, and I wonder what you thought. Yes, it's it's thrifty. It's ninety minutes. It's simple. I wish we had one less gang member because there was a part of me, despite the way that Proyas chooses to to shoot it slightly differently each time, it had a slight repetitive nature to it. Where I was like, okay, can we get 
dispatch of the gang because these are like the cronies and let's get to the big bad. I'll counter that, Gally, and maybe you needed to get rid of, is it Gideon in the pawn shop? But I'm, I'm happy with all the bad guys being dispatched. I like, yeah, I like the way they, well, I like the way they did it differently and all appropriately for their characters. Tintin was the first one to be killed and he was killed with his own knives and it was like a quite a, a, a sharp, snappy, brutal fight in an alleyway, which looked very cool. Uh, and then, uh, who did they kill? So there's Gideon. And then there was Gideon, the he's fun- set on fire. Yep. Which was great. The, the fun boy one is, is very different and he's, because it's fun boy and he's always laughing. So the, you know, he tells mm-hmm. a joke and he just does the thing where he's looking through his hand. But like we were saying, there's that big change in the, in the tone of the scene when they drag him into the bathroom and it's kind of really starkly lit and it's, and it, it kind of, <clears throat> it, it seems oddly gritty and visceral in a in a way which was probably hugely when we were saying influential on later gritty reboots i think that scene especially is is very kind of grim and real and then uh t-bird is the kind of you know he straps him to his 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 car which he's named after <laughs> and that's that's in that the thing we know about t-bird is that he drives that yeah. car. t-bird's one is my favorite one but i love the way he dies because he's genuinely scared mm. like he when he's tied up and he realizes, it's like, you can't come back from the dead. He's quoting from Paradise Lost, which is what he was reading to, to Shelley in the flashback sequences of when he... It can't be you. We put you through the window. There ain't no coming back. This is the really real world. There ain't no coming back. We killed your dad. There ain't no coming back. There ain't no coming back. There ain't no coming back. <laughs> Best the devils did. They felt how awful goodness. They felt how awful goodness. I don't know what's come about. I haven't done much reading into this because I think we're all in agreement that we we don't really want to ponder too too much on on the death. Um, but, but just to say, like from my experience uh, on sets, I've, I've worked on a lot of sets with guns and everything, and it's a very thorough uh, health and safety procedure now. I, I don't know what it was like back then. Unfortunately, I think the film cut a few corners um, because of its budgetary requirements. Working in a state where it had tax cuts and, and meant people could work longer hours, etc. But um, I just I really feel for Michael Massey because he says himself like it's something that will never go away from him. Yeah. Um, well, unfortunately, and, he, he passed away a couple of years ago, and his um, yeah. the the reports of his of his death in the press labeled him as the actor involved in the shooting of oh god which is horrifying his entire life terribly it's not his fault so unfair yeah Yeah. i mean Um, yeah when john landis dies will they say oh there's the guy who killed someone on his set i mean come on that's ridiculous yeah it's um it's 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 really it's very morbid and um i mean in terms of the actual the the facts of the of the accident i think it's been covered elsewhere and we probably don't need to get too far into that there is an episode of cursed films on uh, shutter the series which um which goes into as much detail as you you would want if you are kind of interested in in finding out exactly what did happen on set but it's um i guess we were, we were alluding to it earlier which is the idea of um films that have these kind of morbid real life histories behind the um behind the scenes and and how that feeds into films and we all said that when we were younger we heard the story of brandon lee Mm. and we heard that this was 
it made mm. this film kind of a, uh, a bit of a strange object for us to get into. And uh, over the years, obviously you hear about the curse of poltergeist and the, the exorcist and, um, well, there's the more Omen. examples on this one, yeah. Dublin, as well, because there, there's, I, I said there, they kind of cut corners from what I read in the report. I'm kind of very interested in health and safety from my job background anyway. Mm. But yeah, an electrician, uh, no, uh, a prop guy, was, I think, got electric, electrocuted on set. He was an electrician. Somebody got stabbed by an electrician, sorry. They, they Someone backed a, a screwdriver. A they, they backed yeah. a cherry picker into a high Through the set. Yeah. And, and there was plenty of accidents, uh, yeah. and there was a hurricane that hit them. A lot of people yeah. got got um, uh, uh, ill from the weather uh, that came from the hurricane, and it, it meant they had to shoot indoors a lot more. And, you know, they, they kind of worked to the bone a little bit here in this job. Mm. So I think it was a very high-pressured working situation uh, for this shoot, anyway. I think it's it's, um, it's 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 almost like a, a bit of a get-out to try and call it a curse, right? Because what it is, it is, is a completely. Planet. You can't. It's really unfair, and it, you can't call anything curse because it's bollocks. And yeah. you've got to take. And I don't think enough people do when you hear these stories. Sometimes, like you said about the the omen, uh, Matt, as well. You yeah. can't say that. It's completely disrespectful to to whoever it's affected, yeah. and you shouldn't you shouldn't conduct yourself that way at all. And I think that there was. I think the way that this. Um, this, this so-called scene with Brandon Lee's fate in, has been, you know, swept away uh, and not swept away, uh, it's a of words, but, you know, got, gotten rid of, I think is the right thing to do. It's, it's a respectful thing. It's evidence. It, it should be treated as such and it shouldn't yep. be out there for people to view. And, and it, it shouldn't be treated as, uh, it shouldn't be used as a marketing ploy. No, either. absolutely like the, the not. The Exorcist, I always felt like the, the idea that the set was haunted and things like that mm. was all just a silly, you know, ploy right? but there's some weird stuff on the omen with the decapitation i mean you try and explain that stuff it's just a, a horrible coincidental occurrence yeah. and like you're, twilight you're right. in the movie as well like, oh yeah awful awful mm. i mean i watched the entire trial of um uh, john landis on youtube they've got it all, oh, wow, all on wow. there um, and uh, the, the, I think there is some irresponsibility there that this you can point fingers but sometimes it's a it's just a horrible accident and no one wants this stuff to happen. And when you're making a film, you, you know better than anyone, Patrick, at the moment, like, you know, it can be dangerous. And we, we had like a, a dolly, a dolly track thing called an Elamac dolly at film school. And it, and it killed someone. Um, not when I was there, but in, yeah. in the, in the build up to in our first health and safety meeting, it was like, be careful that Elamac dolly. It has like a, a propulsion kind of thing, like an air. Mm-hmm piston thing and uh, it ended up killing someone um so it's it's there's danger all around on a film set and you just uh yeah just one of those things i think i think th- things are better now matt you know risk assessment risk assessment risk assessment really and mm. the, uh, and the assistant director of my department we're very responsible for health and safety and you you've got to look out for the you've got to do it properly you can't cut corners and i think i well do you remember when we did, sorry Matt, we weren't in this, but remember when we did, okay. um, uh, Dark Morning, lads, and we had to be very careful. We had a, we had like a cleaver being swung around a bedroom yes. in the vicinity mm-hmm. of people and camera. And we, I remember being like, this cannot go wrong, you know, and our tutors. And again, shout out to Laura Taylor and Lisa McKnight because they were very honest for that as well and took a lot of responsibility for us and, 
and made sure we were doing it correctly, which is a great lesson that I took from university as well as going forward from what I learned on um, bigger sets as well. I remember when Heath Ledger died, people were like, yeah, Jack Nicholson said playing the Joker is a dangerous role. Yeah, it was the first and thing they nearly killed him. Off. I was like, what are yeah, you on yeah. about? What are you on about? Like, they're actors, but they're also people, and they've absolutely got a personal life. And who knows what was going on in his personal life? But to say the role killed him, just like in The Crow with Brandon Lee, that it was like, well, it was the role and it was the, you know, isn't that ironic? Well, well yeah, it is. Again, it's, it's, it's a way to explain story. away a tragedy, isn't it? It's it's a yeah. way to put a reason on something without it, it just being an, uh, an accidental, he accidentally took the wrong thing or took too much of the wrong thing or whatever it may be. But yeah, we, we're putting... Um, People love a myth and a narrative. It makes sense in yeah. the world, doesn't it? I want to make a quick comparison. Have any of you seen the Thomas Jane Punisher film? From about 2009. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. With John Travolta with a cocktail. <gasps> Thomas Jane is in the Crow 2 City of Angels. <laughs> Holy shit. My God. This is like six degrees he, of Camden. Uh, right. I didn't even realize that. He gets murdered while having a wank. Oh, brilliant. That sounds <laughs> like go. Thomas Jane. No, uh, what I was going to, what I was going to say is, um, I feel like sometimes because of our discussions, I end up pointing out too many negatives and never, never enough positives when we're discussing any film. If you want to see a bad example of a comic book film that, that's trying to do a revenge tale, go watch the Thomas... J- I mean, I don't, it's not Thomas Jane's fault, by the way. It's definitely the director's. But The yes. Punisher with John Travolta is funny, but not intentional, but is dreadfully <laughs> rubbish at what it wants to do, which is a good nuts and bolts revenge tale. Guy kills why, uh, guy kills other guy's family. Guy en- enacts revenge. Yeah. The Crow, at least, is not only shorter... But gets to the point and mm. gives you those satisfying kills. I remember in The Punisher, Thomas Jane's got an elaborate ruse where he wants to convince John Travolta that his second in command is a homosexual and therefore needs to throw him off a roof. That's the kind of nonsense yeah. that is in that film. Whoa. So at least in at least in this, you see the person it keeps, who yeah. has been wrong. It keeps it like a like a fable, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. It it's keeps a it like films. a fable. Yeah, it's, it's like you say, a proper fantasy film. So I just wanted to say that. Before we move on to, because mm. we touched upon it, but the look and we didn't really mention the sound and the soundtrack, but it's so distinct in this film. Um, yeah, well, I mean, uh, the so the the look of the film is is I guess largely inspired by Alex Mc. Is it Alex Mc, Alex McDowell? Is that the guy's name? McDowell. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, British. He's um, the designer. Um, yeah. Who has uh, a number of incredible credits to his name. Yep. Uh, he was on, um, uh, Minority Report was one of his later ones. Uh, his first film was, um, uh, The Lawnmower Man. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Did he tell me he designed the monkey base? I can only imagine he designed the monkey helmet, yes. The <laughs> um, so guy yeah, also did Fight Club and Watchmen. Yeah, Watchmen's you probably that. the right you can see that. To uh, yeah. yeah. Fear and Loathing in but, Las Vegas. But you look at the art directors nice. as well, and the art directors have worked on Robocop and uh, Lawn Moment Man 2. <laughs> wow, um, and, the, and the Dark Crystal, so that dark, moody wow. kind of thing. And yeah, I think that really tells, because Gally mentioned the... And I wanted to ask you, Gally, actually, a, f- a film that I, and a shot that I know you like very much, but j- just kind of... In a, I know this is going away from the production design a little bit, but the shot selection of the POV of the crow, or the raven, the crow, 
reminded me of an Alien Three of, of the alien chasing them. Yeah, yeah, through, no, through absolutely. The corridors um, well. no, you, warped wide angle kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I you know, yeah. that, that was before this. So but again, super effective, right, Patrick? You, you're able to register exactly what that means, which is, oh, he can see what the crow sees, so he acts like a scout going mm-hmm. ahead. Mm-hmm. Great, wicked, done. And and it gives the, gives the film geography and the geography of of the the way this film looks the the whether it, i don't know whether there's any map paintings in it but miniatures oh, and the mainly the miniatures yeah the miniatures are extraordinary mm. in here and they're done really effectively and you said batman begins earlier uh devlin which i totally agree with because but the scope of this city and and the way it looks when he's playing guitar on the roof i just love the look of that um, the their bedroom with the circular window. It could there. easily have ended up looking like the end of an episode of Dark Place. <laughs> <laughs> it could have, yeah. The tiny room. That... But as simple as like making the pawn shop a really interesting place, and uh, I don't know who's responsible for it, but but the image of the Raven as his calling card at the end of each death of the bad guys, I I'm well into that. I think it looks amazing. My favorite shot in the whole film is, is the high, the bird's eye view of him after he's killed T-Bird and he lights the, the effigy of the crow on the floor in flames. And then he walks off with the crow on his, um, on his shoulder. That is just fucking awesome. I thought that was the coolest thing. And Gally said it was his favorite death. Yeah. Me, me too, Gally. I'm, I'm jumping ahead to favorite scenes though. I'll, I'll, I'll pick another one, but that, that for me just it was the whole start of this film that just epitomized in that one scene. And I think it's really enabled by the production design and, and the look of this film. Yeah, it harks to Batman's um, church sequence at the end, but I don't really care because this film feels kind of unique in its own uh, storytelling of, of a comic book character that isn't widely popular. I, I think that opening shot is still incredible. It looks fantastic yeah, and and although there's some clunky 94 uh cgi like the fire in particular is a yeah. slightly bizarre but um it, it's overshadowed by these strong visuals you know you, you don't mind it too much and you know back then when i first saw it perhaps for the first time ever you felt like the camera could go anywhere uh you've, you've seen it done a lot since but prior to 94 like the way the camera is just floating through this uh, city, it was it was very uh, very original. I think at the time, yeah, I, I think they did a bit of it. Like it reminded me of Beetlejuice when he's going through the miniature. The actual yeah, yeah, there's a bit thing. of that. Yeah, that's true. But was, I was totally wowed by the visuals back then, and I think they still look presentable. Like some twenty six years on, um, I think there's an intent and a vision behind it all, uh, both in the original source material and in Proyas's film. It's atmospheric. The visuals are like really packed into every frame. You feel like there's a lot of detail going on. And something I liked was that you could feel a director's hand at work. I think there was just an overall control and uh, the sense that someone was making the film that he really wanted to make. Mm. And, uh, and I think that that demands some some respect. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Integration yeah. as well between like the the cinematography and the production design. Oftentimes, you. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we we talked mm-hmm. about this back in in the Aliens where there was the original product um director of photography was overlighting these sets yeah yeah if if you don't have that, yeah if if you don't have it hand in hand it's uh it's not going to work whereas this was uh Darius Wolski and um mm-hmm. 
he's you know everything's like you said it's really monochromatic there's lots of quite harsh rim lights on everyone everything's quite backlit Mm-hmm. Um, so otherwise you just end up with it being very murky. So it's a great way around that about, you know, the sets are dark, but you have to make sure there's contract on screen, uh, sorry, think, contrast um, on screen. <laughs> Darius Walsky get, wants yeah. to give me a massive bear hug. Hey. Oh, good luck. Really? Yeah. I think to get around not having Brandon Lee as well, Devlin, is kind of a feat of mm. direct direction and cinematography. And it's kind of, the lighting is quite, yeah, it's and I guess, no, I guess by by backlighting, it's a yeah. it's a decision which really helped them out, and it looks it looks wonderful. Well, if I can put the boot in for a second, it's it's I found it a little bit busy at times, a bit frantic. Mm. Um, I would have liked a little bit more uh, patience in the build up. I kind of touched on it before with uh, the Shelley stuff that could have you know perhaps been expanded. Yeah, there's a there's a strobe that goes on in those flashback scenes that feels overly done oh these flash I agree. frame things it's a bit csi you know it played a bit yeah. um, pastiche yeah. but that's not its fault because you know that stuff kind of followed but th- there was a it kind of starts at 100 miles an hour right away it, nothing really builds uh, and again on paper that sounds great but sometimes you know when you just thrust into something and it, it can just feel like it's the same speed throughout with without too much ebb and flow so again maybe it's the commercial taste uh, that I have, but I just a slightly slower buildup may have may have helped mm. it. I don't know, but it, it's to, it's to the film's credit that it moves so quickly too. You know, like you said before, it's a ninety minute real kind of pulsing thing moving yeah. forward. So you know, th- there's positives there. It's just a matter of preference, I suppose. Another aspect that I actually think is really important and probably continues to give it longevity um, and somewhat dates the film is the soundtrack, right? Devlin, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. They try and put it in a kind of no time, no place. Well, we have got a place. It's Detroit, but yeah, it's sort of timeless apart from the fluorescent lights under the cars, which look goofy. But apart from that, I, to be fair, they only the do 90s, that on, on T-Bird's car. And I guess that that is, that's his character's yeah. calling card. But apart from the, apart from the nineties costuming, which couldn't be any more Stephen yeah. Baldwin, the, you know, everything else is, and, and every, the soundtrack itself is something that's uber, like uber popular. I mean, every time we go into the, one of those rock clubs, I was half expecting Ace Ventura to be like, Hey, is Greg here? And, uh, and then just to walk away. Do you know what I mean, it felt like that, but in a, but in a, in a fun way. That's been really influential, hasn't it? I mean, if you think that those sequences really yeah. reminded me of the later Matrix films. Mm. Yeah. Actually, oh, the, yeah. The, the first one as well. But even like two years, was... two years after this in the bronze, every time that Buffy and the gang go to the bronze, yeah. there's another. Uh, and Blade as well. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Blade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other one, uh, barbed wire. Like I got a bit of barbed yeah. wire when we were in those clubs. <laughs> I, d- I don't think you get a barbed wire film if not for this film. So <laughs> there's a legacy. <laughs> <laughs> but the soundtrack, Devlin, go on then. Who's your favorite? Yeah. The Cure, the Stone Temple Pilots. The smash your face I was, in. I was never, I was, never, I was never super big on the Stone Temple Violets, but, um, the, the, the track that the Cure put into it, Burn, which was, uh, oh, it's good. Good song, good song. Which mm-hmm. was, was, uh, because they wanted to use the Hanging Garden, but, um, uh, obviously Robert Smith realized that James O'Barr was a huge fan and that they were being quite reverential. So yeah, they went ahead and wrote him a new song, which they very rarely played live. They've only played it, I think the first time they ever played it live was like 20 years later. Um, there's some really good hidden kind of nineties, mid nineties, good cure stuff around. Um, but yeah, I would say that and the nine inch nails cover of dead souls, the joy division mm. cover. 
which which is one which is a one two punch right it's the the transformation and then the first sequence of running across the rooftops for some reason you, you know evanescence bring me to life yes it really reminded me of this film i would and imagine that they'd seen that this. video yeah they yeah. must have taken from it yeah. and ju- just a quick one do you remember being on stage with with them in um download in was it, 2008 i do, I do. yeah yeah Man, Amy Lee was hot that day. <laughs> I was going to say, Patrick, there's no way you weren't just like watching from afar, staring instead of doing the cabling or whatever. No, we, we were, we were behind the band. We were to the stage, stage right behind and it was fucking, I didn't really know much about them, but I was like, whoa, who is this? This is great. Yes. Favorite scene, Debs, before we get to our final thoughts. Go on. Oh, what's that? Sorry. What's your favorite scene? Um, I, of the stuff we've not talked about, what, um, I don't know whether it's favorite scene, but certainly filmed uh, a scene that I found kind of bracing this time around was the, um, the shootout in the boardroom was so much more, um, oh, yeah. dramatic and impressive and big than I'd remembered. I guess, uh, I mean, it really did, you know, I know it's been a long, a long time and we've seen plenty of action films that have just kept up in the ante since then, but I thought there was just enough kind of carnage and chaos that, because the the film had been sort of edging us towards it, it needed one big blowout, and it usually and it came just about the right time as well. When we're talking about pacing, just over the mm-hmm. hour mark, maybe an hour and five, hour and ten minutes in, and there you go. There's mm-hmm. your there's your chaos. It's it's just bullets and flying and kicking and all that. And uh, I thought that was uh, that was pretty cool. But in terms of favorite scene, I think it's um it's uh, Brandon Lee and Ernie Hudson sitting in his apartment. <laughs> talking i really i as as you know as silly as all the 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 rest of the stuff with the with the hat was the end of the scene ended up just being quite tender and i yeah, think it gave yeah. the it gave it like a real heart that that helped to sustain the rest of the film throughout i don't know what i am i need you to tell me what happened to us well, you took a six-story swan dive out of a window she uh beaten and raped died at the hospital hey you ask man I mean come on read the file You're Shelley Webster held on for 30 hours in intensive care and body finally just gave it up I saw it man I, I couldn't do jack four I don't know. How about you guys? What about you, uh, Patrick? Oh, well, I, I really like that scene as well with Annie Hudson. I think it was bettered. This is something Matt touched, me and Matt touched upon earlier where, where I said, I, I kind of wished he'd had more of a relationship with Sarah. And that scene with Ernie, with Elbright was kind of a scene I wanted with Sarah uh, in a way right. to, to develop that uh, character. But, um, it seemed we haven't talked about and, all the bad guys, the, the 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 quad, the four bad guys that he he goes on the rampage of revenge for. I really like the scene where they're eating bullets around the table at the bar. Oh yeah, because uh, I just thought that was something kind of really cool and interesting and not seen before, and it allowed them a little bit of time to develop and tell us who they are and their, a bit about their character and how they work together. And you, you don't always get that kind of interest in these um 
um, expendable characters, I think. And I really appreciated that. And I thought it was a really fun, um, fun scene between them. Um, and then Ernie Hudson in his boxer's vest and hat. <laughs> uh, what about you, Matt? <laughs> uh, well, I just keep coming back to the opening room. Really. Oh, yeah. That, the way it grabs you right at the beginning from, from that first image. Um, so, so yeah, that there's some, that, one thing I wanted to say, but I don't really know why is the scene where Sarah kind of rejects the eggs and then she kind of decides that, that, uh, that is it Dala? Dala yeah. is kind of changing her ways mm. and she kind of snaps back and, and says, Oh, eat over easy. I'll have them over easy. That was kind of a, a sweet scene, but, um, yeah, just the o- overall, the visuals of the opening and how it, how it grabs you immediately and still looks pretty cool to this day, I think. We'll walk what's your favourite scene? Hold on. Thoughts. Yeah, what's your favourite scene? Guys? Oh no, it, no. For me, it's um, uh, my favourite scene's the 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 T bird um, car scene. Oh, the death. I think, it, the oh, yeah, I think yeah, I think it perfectly uh, <clears throat> encapsulates the the poetic justice that the crow dishes out. And you know, you mentioned it before, Devlin. Everyone seems to fall by the one thing that characterises them. So you know, fun boy with the heroin and. Um, Tintin with his knives and but that one in particular and it was because of the the way the actor genuinely showed fear and confusion as to actually what was happening to him he couldn't quite comprehend it and I thought mm. that was wonderful because you know not to say that I like as I get older and closer to the grave <laughs> that these are the things that will go through my mind but it but it kind of I thought that that was great because a film that deals with life and death and and death mainly, you know, the crow itself goes through a, a complete arc where Eric is reborn, but knows halfway through the film that inevitably he will have to go back into the ditch. And and you see the character have that, hence the the moment on the roof with the the guitar that feels like his last moment of of sort of he can be himself before he has to finish his yeah his work. And then he uh, destroys that, the, the guitar. Yeah, and then he destroys the guitar, and it's the same with when he's destroying the photos of him and Shelley. It's like it's again, it's all very torturous, adolescent, mainly male. I think that's why I think it appeals. I've sort of walked into my final thoughts, so I hope you don't mind, gents. But but yeah, I know I. So I'm gonna do it. Um, so I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna recommend The Crow as a really good. Halloween film. I know loads of people uh, are kind of getting into this series of Halloween. Let's watch a film every night. Well, I put The Crow in there too. I, I do recommend it. I'm really glad you picked it, Devlin. And one film that I never mentioned is that there is a real parallel between this and Paul Verhoeven's Robocop. You know, the gang, the killing, mm. you know, the way that Eric goes. We see loads of POV shots yeah. through, um, in the flashbacks. And that reminded me so much of some of the stuff that we see in Robocop. And, and the way that the revenge tale is kind of, obviously it's, it's far more complicated in Robocop and there's, there's a layer of satire, et cetera. But, um, I wanted to mention that in, in this summary because I completely forgot to mention it when we were discussing influences. But yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I think it's simplistic. It's not plot heavy. I can, I can agree with you slightly, Patrick. Maybe at times style over substance, but yeah, I think I saw a quote from like Empire that said, Oh, but what style? Yeah, I totally agree. Like, if you can have a film that feels so well directed, visually kind of engrossing, yeah, I'm all in. Um, so yeah, all I need to do is grow my hair like Wincott and then I'm in. And then yeah. I'll see you at, I'll see you at Christmas for the next birthday party, Devlin. Yeah. Okay, 
<laughs> what about you, Matt? What about you? Final thoughts on the, on the crow? Firstly, I want to change my favorite scene. I, I think it should be the playing the guitar on the rooftop. I think that was probably my, my favorite. Oh, the girl you... and the eggs can, I, I can do away with that. But, um, uh, I, I think if you don't expect realism, uh, you know, that's the way to go in. I think there's a suspension of disbelief required. Don't approach this thing logically, whatever you do. Like you have to kind of disengage your brain a little bit, uh, to get the most out of the crow. And if you can put yourself in an almost childlike or adolescent headspace, I think it still works. Unfortunately, the humor landed flat for me. It's kind of appealing in a sense, but quite harsh and blunt and a bit tasteless at times. But maybe I'm just being, being snobby. Um, purely as a fitting tribute to a promising actor and a talented young man. I think it's a, it's a film worthy of your attention. I'd agree with Gally there. Stick it in your horror October. Um, I enjoyed the idea of Bruce Lee's son becoming successful and iconic in his own right. Uh, I think there'll be a large number of people who won't be into The Crow. Uh, I will recommend it, but not wholeheartedly. I think to anyone who's seen it already and wants to reminisce, uh, you'll, you'll probably have a lot of fun with it. Um, also, if you're fairly liberal leaning and you have a teenage kid or a cousin or a niece or a nephew who starts wearing black a lot, uh, then this could really be their cup of tea. Um, or if you've got a goth friend that hasn't seen it, which, which would be very unlikely. I know. You can buy him a DVD or something. (laughs) Um, I think the melodramatic emo tone will either float your boat or not. Um, for a teenager working out some angst issues, it's a real talismanic film. And I think it is therapeutic for some to live vicariously through Eric Draven. Uh, to sort of right the wrongs and undo the bullies and to get vengeance. And I think we all want to stand up like that and fight the good fight. So you can experience all that through this film and, and try to excise any grudges you've been holding on to <laughs> that way, maybe because I sort of did when I was watching it. Um, uh, how about you, Patrick? Mm. Uh, yeah, it, it's funny going not first because you, you end up agreeing with everyone uh, firstly i'd recommend it uh, and what you said there Matt, i i did actually get in touch with a girlfriend earlier who hasn't seen it and i oh. chastised them as like what you call yourself a girl so they're they're heading out to try and find it now um that's cool and gally uh does something i think you said there no, Matt, which she was again, actually, sorry. Uh, I did find myself getting in that headspace of when I watched films when I was a teenager, uh, which was great earlier watching it that mm. way because it recalled films and tone that I liked back then and, uh, that kind of aesthetic that was appealing to, to a lot of us, I think, uh, at that time. You know, I was a big, I was a big Buffy fan and, <clears throat> Uh, I kind of felt a lot of that emotion watching this again in, in, in the enjoyment of the film. Cause, um, I, I thought, I thought it was actually quite great. I thought it was kind of, um, and it feels like, I don't know whether I'm right and jump in if, if I'm wrong. It felt like an underappreciated and underachieving film of the nineties and, you know, like a list of great films from the 1990s. Cause, I think I thought it was great. Um, visually, we spoke about the production design, which I, 
I do kind of take to quite a lot in films if it really impresses me. And, uh, and this did the opening shot, Matt, in particular, yeah. it feels like one of those shots we've spoke about before, which celebrates, um, the production designer and, and the aesthetic, which is, which is a good thing. And what Gally spoke about a director, uh, kind of taking hold and that, that's a good thing to, to do that and show it off. Um, I thought the film was really cool. <laughs> you know, like yeah. when he kills T-Bird, I was like, that is so fucking cool. And I'm talking about somebody who's just murdered someone, you know, <laughs> and when you, when cinema can achieve that, like cool death sequences or cool, like killings, uh, because you know, this, this is revenge and it's justified. It's, it's an odd thing, but I, I was really taken by the image of him lighting the emblem, uh, the, the, the fire crow on the floor and then walking off with the crow on his shoulder, which I just thought was pretty iconic. And it ties in with what you said, Matt, about Brandon Lee. Uh, do we say he's stepping out the shadow of his father here and making something completely mm. on his own that is almost bettering his father in a Hollywood sensibility? You know, there's a mainstream film, English language film in that respect. And I think the film's quite fitting for him that there's an irony with him passing away and, kind of born again through this film for people where people will discover him like myself um so i found it very uh now when i look back at it uh kind of fitting and poetic that way i i thought it was um the other thing that i, I liked was as comic book films go you know we're, we're into superhero territory nowadays and, and big expansive marvel world and DC just not quite sure what to do with itself after the Dark Knight trilogy, but as comic book films go, I always liked Sin City when I was younger, and I thought that that was like a true comic book film in the style and uh, editing and, and how it was that the pace of it. Um, and this, I mm. I think, is even better in in that sensibility. That is choppy, pacey, uh, graphic, dark. Um, yeah, I think it achieves that really well. Um, I think that's all I have to say, really. I, I thank you, Devin, because finally I got to watch it. I said earlier I've never seen it before and I'm annoyed at myself that I haven't. But now I have. Uh, happy Hallowary Wine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice. Did I do that? I'm really right. glad, yeah. I'm really, uh, glad that, that, you know, that you hadn't seen it. Yeah. And that you took to it because that, that is, uh, I guess, the concern that we were talking about earlier, which is that, is a film like this so intrinsically tied into uh, yeah. a, a mindset that you can't quite access again? It's like the same reason why, I don't know, people stop finding their favorite bands after a certain age, right? Mm -hmm. Cause yeah. maybe you stops at 30 devil. Yeah, always stops your, at 30. An, your antennae are down, you know, you feel like, well, I've heard everything I need to hear. Everything yeah. else is just, is just some new shit that I don't understand much I like how I is. Yeah, much like how, how I just said that I wouldn't understand what the kids today would want from a grow film, which I think is honestly true. Um, I think your, your audience for this kind of thing is is narrowing because you don't really get this same kind of um, you won't get this this particular stripe of it's it's anti mainstream while still being mainstream. It was an extremely popular film, but it, it's it can paint itself into a kind of marginalized strip but it's quite a broad strip and plenty of people are going to identify with it. So um, I'm glad you guys uh, enjoyed it. To be honest, um, uh, I, I hadn't seen it in a long time and I took back, I took to it like I would listening to an album that I loved when I was younger. 
and that not only did I know all the words, but I knew every cadence of every line and every little weird kind of, um, every, it's like every little line reading that came through was, was just sort of lodged somewhere in the, in a part of my brain that, that was really nice to access again. And, um, I guess when you watch a lot of Halloween type films, I find stuff like this is really good to break it up. Um, yeah. Yeah. Something that's a bit different, but that is still intrinsically related to the, you know, the time of year and the season, something a bit kind Mm. of, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a good mix. It's, um, it, uh, quite a lot of it probably does lapse into aspects of cheese, but I think it does so from a place of just such kind of sheer earnestness that I, I get swept along with it. Um, and yeah, as we've spoken about, I, I think it's very snappy, very, mm. um, bracing and, and, and really visually impressive in a way that still holds up. Unless you're going to be a real stickler about some, some poor compositing, which I think, you know, I think that, that, that would just be very, um, very That's nitpicky. the birds. Definitely. That's real. That's some real nitpicking stuff. So, um, yeah, well, I mean, thanks very much for chatting about it with me, guys. It's been a wonderful little, um, trip down memory lane. I'm going to go get the gaffer tape out in a sec. <laughs> I'll just, <laughs> can, you, can you do me a favor and the listeners, can you just tell us if you've actually wrapped gaffer around your torso and are you wearing a choker? I'm not right now. No, I'm wearing a, um, I'm wearing a, a very comfortable pair of, um, joggers. Which my, which my goth, my younger gothy self would have been horrified by. In 30 Joggins. days time, will you be wearing the crow attire? I might, I might, I might just be hanging out. I might just be, uh, perched on my balcony. <laughs> <laughs> Playing your guitar in the rain. So listeners, if you are seeking out the crow, um, £2.50 on Amazon Prime to rent anywhere else though. Is it available team? It's not a, it's not a free streamer. You've got a, You've got to rent or buy digitally. So yeah, I would, I would always advocate for physical media. If you've got to pay money, you may as well get to keep it that way. Just like Gally keeps romper stumper. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we move on to our third film in this Hello Rewind series. It is my pick. The team know what I'm picking, but obviously you don't. We are going to be discussing David Cronenberg's The Fly. Yeah, I'm going to stick with that sort of scary but love story but kind of gross uh, theme. So, yeah, yeah well, that's, that's the next one. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. So that'll be our next one. So listen out for that one. That episode will be released next week as we build up to the Hallow Scream date of the 31st of October. But no, thank you very much, team, for uh, discussing The Crow. We will say our goodbyes. Um, all I'll say is Eric... You ain't ever lived in Glasgow, pal, because trust me, it rains here all the fucking time. It's Galley in Glasgow, signing out. Car, car, bang, fuck, I'm dead! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's Devlin in London. (laughs) Believe in revenge, believe in angels. It's Patrick in London. Bye-bye, Burton. It's Matt in South Korea. Uh, and uh, just for your enjoyment, this is one that probably didn't make the soundtrack in 93. <laughs> Enjoy it, team. Uh, we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.
Don't.